Gresham College presents Britain in the 20th Century Responses to Decline, 1895 to 1914, by Vernon Bogdanor, CBE and FBA, Emeritus Gresham Professor of Law. Ladies and gentlemen, um, we tend, I think, to see the years before the First World War uh, in rather a hazy and romantic glow. Uh, as the peace before the storm. Uh, We're all used to pictures of Edwardian garden parties and the like, as if uh, those years were an endless, free and untroubled summer. But in reality, I think our Edwardian forebears were very worried people. And they were particularly worried uh, thinking people by uh, the idea that Britain was now a declining power from the zenith of her power in mid-Victorian times. Now, Britain had been the first industrial country, the first country to undergo an industrial revolution, and she'd built up uh, in the 19th century a great empire covering nearly a quarter of the world's territory and about the same proportion of the world's population, the largest land empire the world had ever seen. But she was increasingly worried that other countries were beginning to overtake her uh, in industrial strength and power. And in particular, two other countries, the United States after the Civil War in the 1860s, and uh, Germany uh, with the formation of the German Empire in 1871 after Bismarck's victory over the French. Germany seemed... uh, particularly threatening power with its great industrial resources, powerful educational system, strong army, and even beginning to develop in the the beginning of the 20th century a powerful navy which was threatening Britain because the British view had always been if you've got command of the seas, you don't need a strong army, you don't need conscription like the continental countries, uh, and so you won't become a very military state. But there was a tacit agreement, it seemed, that Britain would preserve the freedom of the seas with a strong navy and that continental countries, though they might build up a strong armies, wouldn't actually challenge British dominance of the sea. But now it seemed that Germany was beginning to do so. And so people were very worried. Could we compete with these new vast countries? And there was a worry related to that about our situation at home because um, perhaps the last of our imperial wars had finished at the beginning of the Edwardian era, the Boer War, lasted from 1899 to 1902. And during that war, people were shocked at the large number of volunteers, recruits, who were physically inadequate and therefore rejected for military service. And um, people said... You can't create, keep the empire unless you have an imperial race and a strong people to man the empire and conditions really weren't good enough. And that was linked with the beginnings of social investigation in Britain which did reveal the um, extent of poverty and malnutrition and generally poor physical conditions. So people began to think perhaps... Britain was in decline there too, perhaps from some imagined past, perhaps things had never been better. But at any rate, people were becoming more aware of these social conditions. 
and wondering what could be done about them. Now, uh, to that question, how we were to meet decline, there were two answers, and they broadly corresponded with the two great parties of the Edwardian era, the Conservatives, or Unionists as they called themselves, because you remember last time I said they were a, a coalition between the Conservatives and the Liberal Unionists, and then on the left, the Liberals, uh, who were supported by the very small Labour Party. There were two different answers to that question of how Britain could avert decline. Now, the first answer was uh, the Conservative answer, because the Conservatives, or Liberal, I should call them Unionists, I keep falling into that term, Conservative, should be Unionists, they were in power from 1895 to 1905. And they said the best way to deal with the threat of decline is to use the empire constructively. Now, of course, Britain had been an imperialist country throughout the 19th century century, in the sense that she'd been at the head of a great empire. But one uh, writer on the empire in the 1880s said that Britain had acquired the empire in a fit of absence of mind. Uh, She hadn't noticed how she'd done it. Some of it had been done by um, uh, settlers moving out to the colonies from the mother country, building up institutions in Australia, Canada, New Zealand, and South Africa. Others by explorers, uh, without necessarily the help or even the approval of the British government. It had been done without any conscious government policy. And empire was not really a political issue for most of the 19th century, except when British were at risk in colonial wars in South Africa, for example, or Afghanistan. There were three Afghan wars in the uh, 19th century. We never actually succeeded in subjugating Afghanistan. But what changed at the end of the 19th century, it's the period of Rudyard Kipling and all that, was that imperialism became a self-conscious doctrine, a mission, religion almost, And the high priest of that was the colonial secretary of the Unionist government. And here I must use the term Unionist because he'd begun as a liberal but had moved into the Unionist camp in protest against Gladstone's proposals for Home Rule for Ireland in 1886. Uh, This was Joseph Chamberlain. He began life as a radical mayor of Birmingham, very much on the left, but moved, so his critics said, to the right. Now, in 1895, when the coalition government was formed... Lord Salisbury, the Conservative Prime Minister, asked Chamberlain, he was the head of the Liberal Unionist wing of this, he said he could have any post he liked in the government. And you might expect Chamberlain would have chosen the Chancellorship of the Exchequer, indeed I think most people did think he would choose that post, but he said no, the post he wanted was that of Colonial Secretary. Uh, It's of course a post which no longer exists, because he wants to build up what he called the underdeveloped state of the empire, and to make Britain conscious of her imperial responsibilities, and to use empire to avert decline. Uh, this had two aspects. The first was that Britain should no longer maintain a passive stance towards the acquisition of territory, but the dependent empire had to be maintained, possibly by force, perhaps even if extended, if you were going to meet the competition of other European powers, particularly perhaps Germany, but also France and Russia, with whom we had imperial disagreements. But most important from our point of view 
was the question of what was to happen to the self-governing colonies, which were Canada, Australia, New Zealand and South Africa. They were the colonies of settlement. And Chamberlain said they should be more tightly linked to the what we called the mother country then, so there could be a common imperial policy. And then, while Britain on her own couldn't hope to compete with large countries like America and Germany, she could do, do so if she could bring the empire together. So letting the colonies go their own way was no longer sufficient in the new international conditions which Britain now faced. Now, uh, some of the answers and some of the debate, I think, is very similar to the debate we have in recent years about Europe. And you may say that the um, protagonists, those who argued for empire, are very similar for the, to those who argued for Europe to get together so that Britain could play a larger part in the world. Some people said Britain couldn't hope to be a world power in the 1950s and 60s to compete with America or the Soviet Union, uh, just too small. But as the head or perhaps leading European power, perhaps she might be able to do so. And one way in which you could do that, an obvious, perhaps rather crude way, would be to secure a federation. Now, some enthusiasts for Europe, there aren't so many now, but in the 1950s and 60s, and, and during the war as well, in the Second War, did call for European federation. And some people in the 19th century called for imperial federation. And an imperial federation league was formed in 1884 to try and secure that aim. Its head, interestingly enough, was not a conservative or liberal unionist, but a, a member of the Liberal Party, Lord Rosebery, who succeeded Gladstone as Liberal Prime Minister, the Liberal Imperialist wing of the Liberal Party. Now, uh, the problem with Imperial Federation is fairly obvious, a similar problem with European Federation, I think, that presumably Imperial Federation meant that you would have an Imperial Parliament which would be a superior parliament to the British Parliament at Westminster and also to the Australian Parliament and the Canadian Parliament and the New Zealand Parliament and so on, that uh, it wouldn't just be the British Parliament dominating decisions. Now, uh, certainly the British weren't going to accept decisions possibly made against their wishes by an imperial parliament, just as I think people today wouldn't accept a decision made against their wishes by the French and Germans and Italians. But perhaps equally important from this point of view, the New Zealanders, the Australians, the Canadians, they'd gained practical independence. They ran their own domestic affairs um, without any interference from Westminster. They weren't going to give that up either. And uh, so it was against the trend of colonial self-government. For the moment, it got nowhere. And Chamberlain then produced a second idea which uh, had a, a German uh, title. It was a Union for Defence, which he called a Kriegsverein, a Union for War, really, a Kriegsverein, so that the uh, empire would pool um, their resources for the point of view of defence. And that, again, I think, links up with things people have said about Europe. We hear a lot of talk about a common European defence and security policy, Again, it ran up against the same objections because uh, it seemed at first sight uh, possibly a good idea because in the Boer War of 1899, 
the self-governing colonies of their own volition sent troops to help the British fight the Boers. That is, the Canadians, the Australians, the New Zealanders, you may say they had no quarrel with the Dutch in South Africa, but they nevertheless sent troops to help Britain. So there it seemed there might be some hope of cooperation. But here too, again, they said no, these countries said no, they weren't going to, they, they would help Britain voluntarily, but they weren't going to subordinate their defence considerations to those of Britain. Uh, just as I think we today wouldn't subordinate our own defence views to those of the French and Germans and Italians, and despite the agreement with the French last week, I think we want to retain our freedom of action as other countries do. So that idea, for very similar reasons to the failure of Imperial Federation, really got nowhere. But then Chamberlain came up with a third idea, which was much more skillful and very similar to the idea that animated the European community as, it, as the European Union was when it started, common market. Because what the founders of Europe said was, uh, if you say to the countries of Europe, you must join together in a federation, they'll say, oh, no, we're not going to do that. Of course not. So you should approach it indirectly by starting with agreements that are in the self-interest of the individual countries. And so it started uh, in the post-war era with France and Germany and any other country that wanted to join getting together in a coal and steel community by which they promised to share coal and steel production and create a common market in coal and steel. And that was in the interest of both countries. It would lower prices, improve efficiency and so on. No harm in that and seemingly no, um, no dangerous federalist tendencies. But the argument was this would spill over to other changes. For example, one change, who was to regulate the coal and steel community? Ah, for that you need a high commission. That's the origins of the European Commission. But will the commission be accountable? Yes, yes, you have a European Assembly. That's the origins of the European Parliament. And then if you're going to cooperate in coal and steel, why not in other things? What about agriculture? What about fisheries? And so on. And then if you're going to cooperate in these areas, isn't it a bit absurd to go on using national currencies? Why not have a common currency like, like the euro? And then if you have a common currency, um, you shouldn't surely allow some countries like Greece to be so reckless. Perhaps you ought to supervise what they're doing, control their budgets a bit, perhaps have moved towards a common fiscal policy, common budgetary policy. And you can see gradually, step by step, almost without people noticing in a way, you move to political union by harnessing the self-interest of the countries towards it. Now, this was Chamberlain's idea in the, at the beginning of the 20th century. He said, if you just approach the idea of imperial federation frontally, you will get nowhere. The colonies are very eager to maintain their self-governing traditions. But the colonies are eager to help Britain economically, and what the Canadians have said they would do is to give Britain a preference on her tariff for wheat. In other words, they would set up a tariff against all other countries, but give Britain preferential entry into her markets, provided that the British are willing to respond. And the British would have to respond by giving the Canadians preferential access to their manufactured goods. So here you have the chance of an exchange of preferences between the two countries, uh, which could lead, hopefully in, in, in the longer run, to a much greater degree of imperial cooperation. 
And you could create within the empire, the self-governing empire, a tariff union, <clears throat> a customs union, as we would now call it, uh, with perhaps free trade, or anyway, lower tariffs within it, uh, as compared with other parts of the world. And this was the prospect that Chamberlain put before his colleagues in the Unionist government. And the Unionists, although they were imperialists, were profoundly shocked by this uh, for a number of reasons. Firstly, um, they said, if you um, uh, have a preference for Canadian wheat, it means you have to have a tariff against foodstuffs from other parts of the world that aren't part of the British Empire. And they said, but Britain's a free trade country, and we've been free trade since the 1840s. And the 1840s were known in Britain as the Hungry Forties, because with a tariff on wheat uh, from the continent, shall we say, the price of food will rise, and poor people won't be able to afford it. And the British people are very attached, sentimentally if you like, but they're attached, uh, ideologically, whatever you call it, to the idea of cheap food. And uh, if you go back to the uh, days of dear food, you will, well, for a start, you'll, you won't win a general election if you're going to tax the workers' food. And indeed, one of the main um, uh, propaganda um, uh, efforts of the uh, opposition liberals was to uh, put two loaves on the on the table, as it were, in a poster. Uh, one was a very one was a very large loaf that was the free trade loaf, and the other was a small loaf, uh, which was the uh, tariff reform loaf, as they called it. And they said the uh, you know the Tory proposals mean you'll be paying more for your food. Now Chamberlain said that's worth doing because um, you'll get a lot of benefits from it in linking the empire together. But he also gave a more practical um, advantage, which he said would flow from this. He said tariffs would bring in revenues, and with the revenues you can finance social reform. Now, Chainland began his career, as I said, as a radical mayor of Birmingham, very concerned with the condition of the people, and very worried by the um, sorts of evidence that was coming of, of poor social conditions. And one of the things he said you could do with the tariff was to uh, introduce old-age pensions into Britain. So for this, as he put it, a small difference, as he said, uh, in the cost of food. You will have a, a small rise in the price of food. You'll get great benefits, both the people at home um, with um, social benefits of pensions, but also uh, in the imperial sphere, you'll make Britain a great power again. And uh, Chamberlain failed to convince his colleagues of this argument. Um, his colleagues, some of them were sympathetic, but they said, we've got to go fairly cautiously on this. We just can't take the risk of a tax on food. Uh, that part of the programme we really can't accept. We might go some of the way with you, but not as far as that. And Chamberlain said he would resign from the Cabinet and campaign in the country for tariff reform to try and show his rather timid colleagues that really you could win and win that argument. And so he, he did exactly that in 1903. Uh, he made a powerful speech in Birmingham with his constituency and said the time has come to abandon free trade, which Britain had had since the 1840s. The time come to abandon that 
and uh, adopt a different policy. And to, he was going to campaign for that by resigning from the government. And he was going to try and push the uh, unionist coalition in that direction. Now, he might have had uh, some success if conditions had remained as they had been when he made the Birmingham speech, rather depressed. Because in times of depression, perhaps people are worried more about prospects of employment than they are about the cost of living. But as ill luck would have it for him, uh, economic conditions started to improve and Britain began um, to enjoy inflationary boom conditions, if you like, and people became very, very worried about the cost of living. And it soon became apparent that people were very, very frightened, uh, to a degree that may think perhaps today uh, seem irrational, but they were very, very frightened uh, about the dangers of a rise in the price of food. And uh, so... Um, uh, Chamberlain's campaign failed, and not only failed, but it led to uh, the most colossal defeat uh, the Conservatives have ever uh, had, uh, eclipsing even that of 1997. But tariff reform remained a central policy of the Conservative Party, and uh, Conservatives uh, came to look at it again in the 1920s when Britain really was depressed, and in 1923, Stanley Baldwin went to the country on a similar proposal to Chamberlain's, calling for a tariff to deal with unemployment. But he too was defeated. It was, a, it was an albatross, a seen a vote loser. But Britain eventually came to adopt tariffs uh, in the Great Depression of the 1930s that the national government, which was a bit like the present government in some ways, Conservative Liberal Coalition, uh, in 1932 signed agreements with the Commonwealth countries, the Ottawa Agreements, establishing a preferential tariff um, between Britain uh, and the self-governing colonies. There's a great irony about that, because the Chancellor of the Exchequer, who introduced those Ottawa Agreements into Parliament, was none other than Joseph Chamberlain's son, who became much better known, sadly, later in the 1930s, as the leading apostle of appeasement, as Prime Minister, namely Neville Chamberlain, and he's best remembered for the umbrella and Munich and the speech about peace in our time. But he was the Chancellor of the Exchequer who introduced the Ottawa Agreements in 1932. And at that time, someone said about Richard Cobden, the founder of free trade in the 1840s and the victory over the Corn Laws, that no one can now remember whether Cobden was a man or a horse. <laughs> but the immediate effect... Uh, as I say, of, of the tariff reform campaign, was to bring the Liberals, who look, looked as if they'd never get back to power again, but they won a landslide in 1906. And this is perhaps significant, perhaps rather a dismal lesson in a way, that the Conservatives or Unionists had won their hegemony in 1886 by their opposition to home rule on a negative. It was held together by a negative. As soon as they came together with a positive, they broke up. And the Liberals got into power, not as many think, because the Liberals were promising radical social reforms. They weren't. The Liberals got to power on a negative. They said, we are coming to power to ensure there's no fiddling around with free trade. That's the main thing we are interested in. And uh, really, we're not going to do any uh, more than that. And um, they said it wasn't, uh, wasn't a victory for social reform or anything like that. And um, interestingly enough, the Prime Minister of the new Liberal government, now a forgotten 
figure, I think, but significant in his day, Sir Henry Campbell Bannerman. He said, the policy upon which the government has taken office and upon which they have been supported by their friends is the policy of retrenchment, and was a policy of cutting public expenditure, not a policy of social reform. Now, the Liberal victory, um, as I said, was on a greater landslide than Blair won in 1997. There was a 12% swing to Liberals, and the Unionists lost no fewer than 245 seats, uh, much larger than and Gordon Brown lost 94. That was thought to be pretty bad. But the Unionists lost 245 seats. And uh, this was an, an important landslide of victory, but symbolically important for Britain, because it meant uh, that imperialism lost, as it were, the kind of moral strength that it seemed to have, and um, what was going to happen was not, if you like, a strengthening of the imperial tie, but over the 20th century, a gradual withdrawal from the empire. Britain was not going to be, as Chamberlain hoped, a self-consciously imperialist power. And secondly, the, the liberals were going to create, despite their policies in 1906, perhaps willy-nilly, they were going to create a welfare state. Uh, which in outlines is not perhaps as different as you might imagine today from what the Liberals created. Their significance, I think, is as great, that Liberal government, as that of the Attlee government of 1945. And although uh, in the 1980s uh, Margaret Thatcher said she wanted to undo a lot of what she called socialism, I think a lot of those um, landmark policies still remain. There are a lot of fundamental aspects of the welfare state which really no one dare tamper with. For example, and these are principles introduced by the Liberals uh, uh, in their government from 1906. Firstly, the use of taxation as an instrument of redistribution and the use of a budget for social reform, as in the famous budget of Lloyd George in 1909, the so-called People's Budget, which was rejected by the House of Lords and led to restrictions on the powers of the House of Lords. Then the idea of a national health service, the idea that the state is responsible for ensuring the health of its citizens. We all know the National Health Service Act came after the Second World War in 1946 under the leadership of Nairn Bevan in Attlee's government. But in fact, the first measures to ensure the public uh, against ill health was taken by the Liberals in the National Insurance Act of 1911, which established a system of health insurance and it's now thought by many, though not by all, by many, that Lloyd George regarded that as merely a step on the way to a full health service of the kind that Anoirin Bevan introduced. Then the idea that the state is responsible for the welfare of the unemployed, that was also introduced into Britain in unemployment insurance in the National Insurance Act of 1911, and the main uh, inspiration behind that was the president of the Board of Trade, Winston Churchill, a key figure in that government, second only to Lloyd George at that time as a social reformer. And um, unemployment, um, unemployment insurance was very new indeed. Health insurance uh, had already been established in Germany by Bismarck in the 1880s. It was part of his move to outflank the left and particularly the German Social Democrats. Unemployment insurance, Britain was the first country in the world to introduce that, and it was a totally new idea that the state should protect its citizens against unemployment. 
So these were all um, uh, measures of importance with uh, the new government. And uh, later in life, in the 1930s, uh, Lloyd George was holidaying in the south of France, he used to do, and he was approached by the novelist, now forgotten, but quite, goodness, I think rather underrated myself. But anyway, he was approached by the novelist C.P. Snow, who got into conversation with him and asked him how he thought he would be remembered. And Lord George said something very interesting. He said, he said I think our wars will seem rather local affairs to posterity because the centre of gravity of the world is going to change if it hasn't changed already. I am inclined to think that if they are interested in me at all, they will be interested because in the first country to be highly industrialised, I did something to mollify class conflict. And whether they approve or not will depend on whether they believe that was a good thing to do. And Lenin dedicated one of his volumes of essays to Lloyd George as a subtle defender of liberal, what he called liberal capitalism, who kept revolution at bay. Because Lloyd George developed techniques and institutions for containing industrial and social conflict and trying to secure industrial and social peace and political stability. Avoid serious crises with the labour movement in particular, at which he was successful. And the sorts of social tensions which, between the wars, destroyed German democracy and Italian democracy and threatened revolution and, and riot in many continental countries were almost entirely absent in Britain. And it's a familiar point people make about the interwar years. The low conditions were very bad. Uh, extremist parties gained minuscule support. The Communist Party never had more than 29,000 members. Most of the middle class, it happens. Uh, the British Union of Fascists was never able to contest a parliamentary seat. I mean, people looked at the last election and said how glad they were that the British National Party didn't win any seats, but they contested over 330 seats and secured a total of nearly 2% of the vote. And that's far higher than Mosley would have got in the 30s. He actually wasn't strong enough to put up a candidate in a general election. That's an interesting paradox, although conditions are much better today than they were, the far right is doing uh, better than it was in the hungry 30s. And we see all these pictures of black shirts marching through London, but forget they were politically completely unimportant. They never won a council seat. Um, the British National Party has over 20. Uh, and they, they never put up a candidate in a general election at all, uh, which is significant of their weakness. So Lloyd George was very successful in crisis avoidance. In the 1980s, people began to ask, and I think Margaret Thatcher in particular began to ask, haven't we bought that crisis avoidance at rather too high a price, at the cost of a loss of dynamism in industry and society in general? Haven't we too often preferred conciliation and appeasement, particularly of the trade unions, to an emphasis on dynamism and efficiency? And isn't that a cause of British decline? Wouldn't we have been a more successful industrial country if we hadn't devoted quite so much energy to the process of conciliation? Well, that's a question Lloyd George wouldn't have accepted, I think. He wouldn't have had much sympathy with that outlook.
Now, uh, in a history book uh, written in 1965, I think it's still well worth reading if anyone's interested, the last volume in the Oxford History of England, the um, great historian, in my opinion, a very familiar face on television many years ago, A.J.P. Taylor, he began the book in this way. He said, Until August 1914, a sensible, law-abiding Englishman could pass through life and hardly notice the existence of the state beyond the post office and the policeman. Uh, I think a better date would be actually 1911 rather than 1914, because I think the National Insurance Act changed things, but still. Or perhaps even 1908, when old-age pensions were introduced. Now, during this period of the Liberal government, and it carried on till after the war, I think, till the end of the Lloyd George Coalition in 1922, I think Britain moved from one kind of society... Uh, call it, if you like, unregulated capitalism or liberal capitalism, give it what title you like, um, to another kind, which people sometimes call corporatism, but I think better to call regulated capitalism. I think we moved from unregulated capitalism to regulated capitalism. And I think that's the only main radical, real change we've had in the 20th century from one sort of society to another. I think every change since then has been within that framework of regulated capitalism. People on the left wanted to regulate it a good bit more. Some of them wanted to move to another form of society, which they called socialism, but they didn't succeed in that. Some people on the right wanted to regulate it much less. And again, Margaret Thatcher's government and people around her wanted to move it perhaps more back to the unregulated system before 1906, but they didn't succeed in doing that either. And I think it wasn't noticed that we were changing society in that way for a very interesting reason, because the left, people on the left said that the only change in society is to some form of socialism. Well, the Labour Party certainly said that uh, at the beginning of the century, the 1920s. They said the only radical change is to socialism. And since we haven't got socialism, nothing much has changed. It's still capitalism, if you like, raw in red in tooth and claw of the phrases. And the right said, since we haven't got socialism, nothing has changed. We still live in a capitalist society, a different form of capitalist society, I think. And it's been extraordinarily difficult to transform it, either from the left, as the Labour Party found out, or, I think, from the right, as Margaret Thatcher found out. And it seems to me a great uh, change, caused mainly by the um, uh, Liberal government of that time. Now... Um, the first uh, reform, a very minor reform in modern times, but it had in modern terms, but it had some significance perhaps, was in 1906 when uh, the Liberals introduced a proposal for free school meals. It wasn't compulsory, it was permissive, that any local authority who wished to do so could provide free school meals for children whose parents couldn't afford school meals. It was permissive. In fact, only 11 local authorities actually provided a very minimal reform. But for some people, and I think rightly, it was a great issue of principle because they said, uh, why shouldn't the parents be punished for neglect uh, if their children are poor? And perhaps the parents should be made paupers or put in, in, into um, the workhouse. The parents are responsible for children and not the state. And the great constitutional lawyer Dicey said this, and Dicey was, um, he was on the right, but he wasn't um, an extremist in any way. He said, no one can deny that a starving boy will hardly profit much 
from the attempt to teach him the rules of arithmetic. But it does not necessarily follow that a local authority must therefore provide every hungry child at school with a meal. Still less does it seem morally right that a father who first lets his child starve and then fails to pay the price legally due from him for a meal given to the child at the expense of the ratepayers should, under the Act of 1906, retain the right of voting for a Member of Parliament and should be deprived of his civil rights. Why a man who first neglects his duty as a father and then defrauds the state should retain his full political rights is a question easier to ask than to answer. In other words, the state was taking over a responsibility, which traditionalists said was that of the individual. And then this moved on. In 1908, uh, the Liberals introduced the first old-age pensions. And this was done, again, on a very minimal scale. Uh, it was introduced only to people below a level or a certain level of income and on a sliding scale. It was five shillings a week, which even then wasn't much for a single person, and seven and sixpence for a married couple. Uh, it affected half a million people, more, many more women than men. It was, in a way, a great feminist reform. Um, uh, now, you had to prove, uh, to get this money, that you had not been a malingerer uh, and uh, that you were of good character and that you were not on poor relief. And these were all uh, difficult tests. It was not universal, which the TUC wanted. But again, the main pressure of that came from the right wing. And uh, a speech in the House of Lords against it was made by Lord Rosebery, whom I mentioned before, the great imperialist. He'd been a Liberal Prime Minister after Gladstone, but he'd moved very far to the right, and although nominally still Liberal, was really with the Conservatives. But he said that the old, old age pensions was a pauperising bill, symbolising the final passing of family pride in caring for their elderly. It is, of course, socialism pure and simple. It is the beginning of a long process which will culminate in the handing over of hospitals to the state, than which he could think nothing worse. Now, there's another critic of the um, pensions bill, which you may, may, who you may find more sympathetic, and it's a name who one meets with a lot in the 20th century, namely William Beveridge. Now, we associate Beveridge with the famous report of 1942, which so much influenced the Attlee government's decisions about the welfare state, but he first came to prominence much earlier uh, in the 20th century. Uh, he was discovered, interesting enough, by Winston Churchill as an administrator, and he was used to administer the um, um, uh, labour exchanges which Churchill set up to complement the system of unemployment insurance. Uh, this required experts from outside the civil service, the state mo moving into new areas, and Beveridge was one of the key figures uh, in that. Uh, Be Beveridge was, incidentally, himself a liberal, and sort of a liberal candidate in 1945 he was defeated, despite the popularity of the report. And someone said in 1945 uh, to Beveridge, a heckler, uh, it's in his autobiography, well worth reading, called Power and Influence, and a heckler said to him in 1944, I'm not voting for you, I'm voting for Churchill. And Beveridge said, well, when Churchill was a liberal, you could have voted for both of us, which of Churchill was fine, they're no longer liberal. But Beveridge said it was a mistake to have the pension scheme on a non-contributory basis. And that was his view of national insurance after the war. He said the pension just giving people five shillings or seven and sixpence, mistake. And he said this, a non-contributory scheme sets up the state in the eyes of the individual as a source of free gifts. A contributory scheme 
sets up the state as a comprehensive organism to which the individual belongs and which he, under compulsion, if need be, plays his part. Each view involves abandonment of traditional laissez-faire. The first, however, represents a change for the worse, which it will be hard to remove. The second uh, is a natural recognition of the growing complexity and interdevelopment of industrial life. And when people said, well, you can't expect impoverished people to contribute towards their pensions, he said, surely a, a man wastes more than tuppence a week on drink. Let him contribute that. How can a man better prove that he needs and deserves a pension than by paying for a contributory scheme? Now, I think David Cameron would have a lot in sympathy with Beveridge's view about contributing to society, the big society. It's a view that's come back, very much come back into fashion, I think, Beveridge's view. that Beveridge always took the view that... Uh, he said the British people, perhaps optimistic, don't want handouts. They want to be seen as citizens and therefore contribute to their welfare. They do not want free handouts. And that was why he was so sympathetic to the insurance principle. The problem, um, the problem with, with all this was that um, a lot of the beneficiaries of pensions, as I said, were women who could not contribute because many of them hadn't been working for much of their lives, if at all. Many of them, obviously, those who had worked had, had their periods of work interrupted by childbirth and so on. So that was a great problem with the old age pension scheme. If, if you were going to apply it fairly between men and women, it had to be, really, I think, non-contributory. But um, the next major social reform was contributory, and that was the National Insurance Act. And again, Beveridge had a lot of influence on, on that. Um, and um, here, Britain was greatly influenced by Germany, which, as I said, had adopted a system of health insurance, but not unemployment insurance. And Winston Churchill um, wrote to the Prime Minister who succeeded Campbell Bannerman, uh, Herbert Asquith, in 1988, he said about Germany that she is organised not only for war, but also for peace in, in this way. And there were two aspects to the National Insurance Bill. The first was national health insurance. And that was only for those earning less than a certain amount of money, £160 per year. And it was not unconditional as with old age pensions, it was contributory. And there was a triple contribution. The employee paid fourpence, the employer paid threepence, and the state paid twopence. So the, the slogan which Lloyd George used about it was, you got ninepence for fourpence. Um, and um, this covered uh, people in employment. It covered men and those um, women, mainly unmarried women, who were in employment. Um, there, was no, there were no specific benefits for women other than a maternity grant. That was introduced, and that, again, was a landmark um, policy. But the argument that Lloyd George used in those days was this, that um, the aim of national health insurance is not so much to insure people against illness, but against insecurity. That if a woman or a dependent is ill, but the man can go on working... The family will stay together. If a man is ill and can't work, everything will collapse, and therefore you ought to ensure against that insecurity which will affect people's homes from illness. Uh, now, um, the um, unemployment insurance was the first uh, time uh, this happened in any industrial country. 
the, the state entered the life of, an, if you like, an ordinary person, uh, able-bodied, able to work, uh, not a pensioner, not ill, uh, fit and so on, uh, adult, again, mainly men. And it, was, it began in a very small way, confined at the beginning to what were thought of as precarious trades, like engineering, building, shipbuilding and mechanical engineering. And uh, there was an employer, an employee contribution of tuppence halfpenny per week. The state paid one and two thirds uh, pennies per week. And this gave you a benefit which lasted for a maximum 15 weeks a year. And Churchill said rather grandiloquently, it was based on what he called the magic of averages. And it's a pure statistical idea which he built up rather grandly that it was assumed that the fund would break even at a level of unemployment of 8.3 million, uh, sorry, what am I talking about, of 8.3%. And if unemployment was no higher than 8.3%, the fund would break even. Perhaps it would be a bit higher one year, a bit lower another year. But Churchill called this the magic of averages, though to us it's a fairly simple statistical concept about the nature of insurance. Now, um, behind these ideas of insurance was this that um, you deal, you, you can, the insurance principle deals with the scrounger, about which people were very worried in, in those days, perhaps they are today as well. But that there's no point scrounging, because if you're scrounging, you just use up your contributions. You see, if, if you malinger, say, um, you can't find a job or you're ill when you're really not, you just use up the contributions for which you paid your benefits. There's simply no point in doing that on the insurance principle. Now, the problem was, with unemployment, what was going to happen if, as during the interwar period, unemployment permanently rose above 8.3%. It was a minimum from 1921 to the outbreak of the Second War. Unemployment reached uh, was at least 10%, and often much higher. It reached about 32% in the early 1930s. What was going to happen then? Now... Um, the answer in earlier days would be, well, hard luck. I mean, you know, if you can't um, manage, you have to go to the workhouse. That was the answer applied to people who were unemployed after the Boer War. You couldn't give that answer after the First World War, when, after all, so many had fought in such terrible conditions. They, weren't, they couldn't be expected to come back when there were no jobs in the labour market and be put into the workhouse. Society would no longer tolerate that. So in 1921, the Lloyd George government made a very fateful decision. <clears throat> it introduced what it called, rather euphemistically, transitional benefit. And transitional benefit meant that when you'd run out of benefit paid for by your contributions, you would still get benefit from the state. And that was called, in the 20s and 30s, it was a highly emotive issue and it led to the collapse of the second Labour government in 1931. It was called the Dole, the Dole, because it wasn't based on contributions or the insurance principle. And once you introduced the Dole, then people said, and these weren't only people of the right, it was often people who support the Labour Party who were in work, they were very worried about scroungers. Indeed, there's a very interesting book about the 1920s by a social theorist called Alan Deacon, a very interesting short book called In Search of the Scrounger. And people used to write to Ramsay MacDonald, the Labour leader, these were Labour voters, and they said that married women, it was always women for some reason, were taking men's jobs, that they'd seen married women drive in their cars 
in fur coats to the unemployment exchange to collect their dole, and wasn't this scandalous? And when was the Labour Party going to do something about it? I mean, this is, it could be the government today speaking, you know, scroungers, you see, in search of the scrounger. So you had to stop the scroungers. Now, how were you going to do that? And two tests were invented in the 20s to stop that happening. The first was the genuinely seeking work clause. You had to show that you genuinely seeking work. Now, even though everyone knew there was no work, for example, if you were a miner in a Welsh valley, you had to have shown that you walked to the next valley to the employment exchange to see if there was any work. Everyone knew there wasn't any work, but you had to show it. The second test, even more infamous, was the means test. You had to show that you didn't have the means to survive without the benefit. And that meant um, uh, if you had a piano in your house, you had to sell it. If you, if you, if you had uh, excess furniture, you had to sell it. And there were, there were people, it, it varied. Until 1934, this was implemented by local authorities, and Labour local authorities tend to be more lenient than conservative ones. But there were also inquiries made as to whether you weren't cohabiting or with someone who had the means to pay. For example... Uh, were you not necessarily in a sexual relationship? Were you, were you living with a nephew who, who was in work and trying to scrounge through him? And all sorts of prurient inquiries. It made the whole thing rather degrading and hated. But uh, this was, uh, the, the seeds of all this were in the Churchill unemployment insurance uh, of 1911, the magic of averages. Now, um, the Conservatives uh, at that time, before the war, did not oppose any of these measures in any serious way, though some people outside did. And in particular, um, there was what was called a revolt of the duchesses because um, uh, insurance was com made compulsory for some reason for domestic servants and it meant the duchesses had to lick stamps, which they thought degrading, to, to make the payment. And um, the Daily Mail published the following um, interesting excerpt. It said... I have seen no reference in the course of this correspondence to the pathetic case of the nursery governess. Why should she, who has perhaps seen better days, who is perhaps a lady, think of it, be dragged through the weekly ordeal of plastering nasty stamps on a grimy card? My blood boils when I think of the blush mantling her humble brow, the more so as this duty will doubtless have to be performed in the presence of that vast army of prying, peering, callous, gossiping new officials, which is growing every day, the minions of a radical government. And at a meeting, the Dowager Countess of Dissart appeared with her maid, and they played at the beginning of the meeting the march of the men of Harlech and Rule Britannia and formed the Tax Defence Association and refused to pay their insurance contribution. Uh, in a book um, published at the time, it had a great impact, the writer Hilaire Belloc, who wrote a book called The Servile State in 1912, when he said the Conservatives should have opposed national insurance. And Bonner Law, who became Conservative leader in 1911, said he would repeal it if the Conservative government came to office, but then he changed it. Health insurance was bitterly opposed, not by the Conservatives so much, as from the British Medical Association, who opposed also the health service in 1946. And that tended to be, at that time, at least the wealthier doctors, because on the whole, the poorer doctors were rather helped, I think, by um, health insurance. Now, as I've said, uh, Lloyd George wanted further reforms, um, in particular, I think, to create a national uh, health service. But uh, that uh, didn't happen. It's a liberal paradox, it's a paradox, this liberal government, I think, that we associate the liberals most of all, perhaps, 
uh, with the issue of a constitution, constitution reform. And indeed, I think social reform was really an interest of minority of the Liberals. I don't think Lloyd George and Churchill were particularly representative of the average Liberal in the party. But nevertheless, uh, the Liberal government was much more successful in social reform on the whole than it was in constitutional reform. Uh, and in particular on um, the uh, reform uh, in Ireland of Irish home rule. Um, and it was that that uh, really um, was, seemed to be about to bring the government to a halt in, in 1914, because uh, when the, um, uh, they put forward a home rule bill in, in 1912, um, the people of the Protestant part of Ireland, in particular the North East, parts that are now Northern Ireland, uh, said that they would not um, live under a Dublin government and that when Home Rule was passed, they would um, uh, declare a unilateral declaration of independence from it. And uh, this uh, made the Liberal government, I think, very unpopular because the Ulster Unionists were asking no more than simply to continue to belong to the United Kingdom. The Irish nationalists were asking for a privilege, home rule, devolution, we'd now call it, within the United Kingdom. The Ulster Unionists didn't want devolution. They just wanted to remain part of the United Kingdom as people in London or Edinburgh or Cardiff or anywhere else apart part of the United Kingdom pay the same taxes, the same laws, everyone else, and not to be forced into a form of government they did not like. Uh, the Liberals struggled uh, hard with this, and... Um, Eventually, uh, a conference was held at Buckingham Palace at the suggestion of the King to try and reach agreement. And um, there was an attempt by the Liberals to secure a compromise. And they said the compromise should be this, that uh, the Protestant counties of Northern Ireland should be allowed to opt out of Home Rule for a period of six years. And they left this to the Unionists and Nationalists to discuss from Northern Ireland. And anyone who knows the history of Northern Ireland won't be surprised to know that they couldn't agree. And um, the Unionists said, if you just take the Protestant counties, that gives you only four. But Tyrone and Fermanagh, which have small Catholic majorities, we can't do without them. So we must take six counties at least as a unit. And the Nationalists said, we can't possibly allow... Tyrone and Fermanagh with Catholic majorities to go to the north. And the Unionists said, we can't possibly allow Tyrone and Fermanagh um, with the, with, um, uh, to, to go to the south. And uh, the Unionist leader was Sir Edward Carson, the great um, lawyer, prosecuted Oscar Wilde in the famous trial. Oscar Wilde said he prosecuted him with all the vehemence of an old friend. And uh, the um, uh, Nationalist leader was John Redmond. And when these discussions had reached state of helplessness with the Liberals and Conservatives looking on, Redmond went up to Carson and said, I have to say how much I admire the position you've taken and were I in your shoes I would do exactly the same as you've done. And Carson said, well actually I feel exactly the same about the what you've, position you've taken and I think you're absolutely right and I would have done exactly the same as you had done in your shoes and they shook hands on it and the British looked on helplessly and said how can we ever rule Ireland? So they got nowhere and um, they hadn't discussed time limit where there was also a disagreement because the um, unionists said that exclusion must be permanent and the nationalists said it can only be temporary for six years. So there was a breakdown. 
And then uh, Churchill says in his magnificent prose, well worth looking at in the world, book called The World Crisis, which um, his conservative opponent, Arthur Balfour, said Winston Churchill has written a huge book about himself and called it The World Crisis. <laughs> but he said, um, he said uh, at the last meeting of the conference, someone brought in a newspaper to say that the Archduke Franz Ferdinand had been shot in Sarajevo and he said the towers and steeples of Fermanagh, he said, began to fade away in the distance and an unearthly glow began to light up our proceedings. And Asquith wrote to his... He was in the habit of writing letters to his girlfriend um, after cabinet meetings. They're collected in a very interesting book by Michael Brock called Asquith Letters to Venetia Stanley. They were written, there were two or three a day, written from the cabinet room, with really told you everything that was going on in the cabinet, the best source we have for the outbreak of the war. And uh, these letters, I mean, the postal service was much better then, because he said at one point, uh, she lived in, in the east end of London, I think she was a social worker of some sort, and he said, I'd better finish my letter now, or you won't get it later today, the post will delay it till tomorrow. <laughs> but he said, um, he said, then I had my greatest stroke of luck, he said, with the outbreak of the war which prevented a civil war in Britain, as he thought. But the outbreak of the war ruined the, the radical and um, um, progressive movement in Britain. It came to an end, as it did, I think, in America. It killed the whole progressive movement. And what's remarkable in the sense about the liberal landslide of 1906 is how short a period it lasted. By the election of January 1910, it had gone. The liberals were dependent on the Irish Nationalists and on the Labour Party and the Liberals were never to win another election again. So this was the last great Liberal victory. This left-wing victory didn't last long. The longest-lasting left-wing victory in modern times was Tony Blair's in 1997, who then had governed to the left for 13 years, it was Liberals from 1906 to 14, and the war broke out eight years and as I said, it was the last great Liberal victory, and no one could predict, certainly not Asquith in 1914, but the Liberals would never form a government of their own again. And next time, I shall look at the consequences of the war, and one of them, as I say, is destruction of liberalism, but there were many others too, and hope to see you then. Thank you. For all information, please go to our website at www gresham.ac.uk